0: All right, so we're in Acts chapter 7, what we're calling the Spirit-empowered mission. And in Acts chapter 7, we're going through the book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, things go from really bad to really worse. The church is in an infancy infancy stage, and uh, we have seen the incredible growth of the church through the first few chapters, and um, that... Even through that growth, it was not without struggles and problems from within the church, putting sinners together, and from those from outside the church, those who are persecuting the church. Dr. Luke, the the, the human author of this book, who was led by the Holy Spirit, gives us an account in the book of Acts of all that Jesus continued to do once he, you know, after he was buried and rose from the grave, died, rose from the grave, ascended to the Father, and then Luke picks up and says, this is what Jesus is continually doing. We'll see that again uh, here today as, as he empowers his uh, people, his disciples, his apostles, to be a witness of his death, burial, and resurrection. Up to chapter 4, things have been relatively calm, um, but in chapter 3 leading up to chapter 4 We find Peter and John had healed a man who was lame since he was birth, Since his birth uh, He was about 40 years old And they healed him in the name of Jesus Now, healing probably wasn't much of a problem, but it was healing in the name of Jesus that the religious leaders had took issue with because Jesus was the man that they had crucified and they had buried in a grave and they were hoping to get rid of him, never to hear his name again. But in the name of Jesus, this man is healed and their nightmare becomes a reality, right? It's like waking up from a bad nightmare. Uh, something coming true that you don't really want to hear that the king jesus is still healing he's still redeeming he's still restoring creation the kingdom of god is advancing and there are angry people in the temple anger morphs into violence which we will see today so peter and john do this healing in chapter three in chapter four they get arrested sleep overnight in a jail they get out and they're told and scolded don't talk about jesus anymore they didn't pay no mind to that they went right back into the temple preaching the name of jesus they said we can't help but preach his name in acts chapter five they're arrested again a second time and an angel of the lord comes and lets them out of jail in the middle of the night and says this is what we want you to do we want to release you from the jail we want you to go back in the temple and teach about jesus and that's exactly what they do this time after they've done that they're not only scolded and warned but they're beaten and they're flogged. And persecution now has become violent. Okay, flogged, whipped. I don't know if you understand what that means. It, it means they, they were strapped to a, a, probably a pole or, or, or some sort of uh, uh, stone. And, and they were whipped with, with you know, these strips of, of calf hide on their backs. People have said that the uh, scourging of a man would actually show his uh, organs in his back. That's how bad it was. But if you go down to chapter 5, verse 41, we find something very, very astonishing. That their beatings did not stop them from going into the temple a third time, but actually fueled them. Chapter 5, verse 41, it says that after they were beaten, they were beaten, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Last week in chapter 6, we saw this, in the midst of this crazy and and horrendous persecution, that the church had some internal issues. If you weren't here, we had that storm It's online. You could watch the video, download the podcast or the video or the audio. But uh, in chapter 6, if you want to stay in continuity through Acts I encourage you to, to look at that uh, sermon in Acts chapter six. We find the Hellenistic Jews, the widows who were Greek-speaking Jews, not originally from Palestine, were, were being neglected in the daily distribution of goods. It appears that the Hebrew Jews, those from that local Jerusalem, from who spoke Hebrew, they were, they were the nationally raised and born he, widows. They were getting special treatment. And they were, they, were, they were coming to the apostles with their issues and saying, you know, we're being neglected. And the apostles got together and they put the whole church together and they came up with a plan. They said, listen, what we need to do is we need to get seven men to, to serve tables so that we can go back to the ministry of the word so we could preach the word, so we could teach the word, so we could pray. One of the men that was chosen last week, which we saw, was a man by the name of Stephen. Luke says he is full of the Holy Spirit. And that's where we're at today. Chapter 7 is the story and the sermon of Stephen. His, not only his sermon, but his stoning. A godly man that God had given extraordinary power to. He was doing signs and wonders. He was not only a, 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 the beginning stages of a deacon, a, a servant of the church, but he was a powerful preacher teacher of the word, and, and he, he was uh, uh, given uh, the power, the authority in Jesus' name to bring healing to many, many people, and we'll see today that his life comes to an end. So we're gonna view our text under three different headings. The first is Stephen's defense. He's going to stand up and, de- and, and give a defense for what he was being charged with. We'll look at that. Also, the Sanhedrin's response, very simple, his defense, their response, and then the Savior's solution, to the problems that are at hand. So that's where we're going to be at, Stephen's defense. Now, chapter 7, verse 1, it says, The high priest said, Are these things so? Okay, so the Sanhedrin has gotten together, and this high priest steps up, and he asks Stephen if this is so. Now, verses 2 through verses 53 is the longest sermon preached in the book of Acts. Acts, i got to get that right. I'll be ridiculed for a week, okay? Acts. And, and what I want to do is, I'm not going to read the whole sermon. I want you to do that. We don't have time for that. But I want to talk about the sermon in, in, in three major movements, okay? Three major movements. Now, let me set the context. After Stephen was chosen by the church and their hands were his, uh, the apostles came to lay his hands on them and set them to, to the ministry of, 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 of the, uh, the widows and the serving of tables, after that, the Sanhedrin didn't like what Stephen was doing, preaching and teaching, and healing people in the name of Jesus. They didn't like that, just like they didn't like the apostles doing it. And what you see is the persecution going from the apostles only to the greater body of believers here in, in chapter 6. And what they did was they, they came to him, and you'll notice in, in chapter 6, verse 11, 13, and verse 14, they come to him and they, they, they accuse him, of speaking blasphemous words against the law of Moses and against the holy place, which is the temple. Verse, Acts six fourteen says, for we have heard him say, this is the accusation, that this Jesus of Nazareth, the one he's healing people, the one he's preaching, will destroy this place, meaning the temple, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I think it's interesting. Let me just side note. That they're talking about him blaspheming the laws of Moses and his face shined. If you know your Old Testament, you know that when Moses went up to Mount Sinai to receive the law, to meet with God, what happened? His face was shining. Just a side note. I think there's you know, definitely a, a, a connection there. Okay, so I'm not going to read it, but he goes on to this long, lengthy sermon about the history of Israel. My first question is, why would Stephen, being accused, go into a long sermon, 53 verses, about the history of Israel to the Sanhedrin? The Bible thumping, I know the law inside out, the entire history of Israel, why would Stephen bother? Was there anything that they may not have known that that Stephen mentioned? I don't think so. If you step back from that sermon, what you will see and what Steve was getting at, remember the charges were blaspheming the law of Moses, speaking against the temple, the presence of God. In one great sermon, Stephen takes the major themes of the Old Testament Right, the story of Israel and rightly interprets it through the lenses of the gospel. That's what Stephen is doing. What, what Stephen is saying is that the religious leaders have failed to see how Jesus and the gospel, how Jesus and the gospel brings to focus their scripture, their story. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. And the sermon that he preaches through this long chapter is, is broken down in a couple of discernible parts. Let me just say them for you, for those of you taking notes. Verses 2 through 8 deal with Abraham. Verses 9 through 16 deal with Joseph. Then there's a long discourse between 17, chapter 7, verse 17, through 43 that deals with Moses. And, and then Stephen jumps into the contrast between the wilderness tabernacle, that 10th that meeting that they would break down and move as they moved, until they came to Solomon's temple that was, you know, concrete, uh, stone and it, it was, you know, unmovable temple that they had. That's in verses 44 through 50. And then in chapter 7, verse 51, Stephen <laughs> drives it home. Bold accusation against the Sanhedrin. One thing we know about Stephen, I'll tell you why. He did not have his Bible with him or his iPhone. Right? He's not going through there. He knows his Bible. He goes through the whole history of redemption, right, and and, and he knows his Bible, and he says, and as he leads them through the most important events in the history of redemption, Stephen shows his accusers in each part of that history, he shows them that they were wrong in three major ways. One is because of the land. Now, if some of you have read ahead, I hope you have, you're studying this passage, different commentators break this up a little bit differently, Uh, this this. Sermon, this is the way I did it. Um, let me see, do I have it here? Yeah. The land, Stephen says, listen, the land that was given to you, God worked through the people of Israel outside the land, number one. Number two, he says, God has given Moses the law, but you failed to keep it. And then third, God's presence, the Lord, the presence of God was, was, was manifested to people who are outside the temple. That, that's what he's getting at. And he seeks to correct, and he, and he tells the Jewish people and, and, and that the history of Israel, the truth is, much of Israel and the history of Israel, Israel um, was spent outside the land of Israel. Their nationalistic pride, I mean, has gotten to the point of pushing God out. Okay, the nationalistic pride, I hope this sounds familiar, has pushed God out. This week, unless your head's in the sand, so many people are wrapping themselves on this side or on that side, constitutionally. What, what Robertson said, the Duck Dynasty has the right to say it. What he said was, I mean, it's unbelievable. I'm not going to take sides, I don't want to get political, I'm not going to get sides, but I will say this, and I'll probably get in trouble for this, and I'm okay with that. As believers in Christ, it is a slippery slope where we're becoming the bigot, idiots, nationalistic, wrapping ourselves in the American flag, when we don't really realize this is not our home. America will be burnt up. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth. There'll be no constitution. I'm not saying we shouldn't stand up for our rights. I'm not saying that. I'm saying Israel became nationalistic and prideful and bigots over it. We have to be careful. I say that to myself. I believe in the constitution. I believe we have the right to say what we want. I believe what the Bible says. But I do believe and know that this is not my home. This is not my home. There's no constitution in heaven. Jesus is king and ruler and reigner, and we're going to fall at his feet and worship him. That's, that's the deal. All right, I'm just saying it's a slippery slope, okay? I'm off my soapbox. Number two, not only the land, but the law. Even though Israel had the law and shown themselves to receive the law through Moses, they were rebellious toward Moses. They're rebellious towards the law. And third, the land, excuse me, the Lord, in the presence of the Lord, so... Number one, verses two through eight. Verses two. If you have your Bible open, I'm not going to read it, but verses 2 through 8. God appears and speaks to Father Abraham in a foreign land. He's not in Israel. He's in Mesopotamia. He's in a foreign land. He's not in Israel. He's not in Jerusalem. And what the point that Stephen makes is that God's calling and his mercy had nothing to do with the land that was promised to him. He was called out by mercy, by grace of one man in all the nations, simply by the gracious hand of God. The land came later. And even though he was told he will possess the land, not him, but his, 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 uh, his, his ancestry, he was, the Bible says in Genesis, that he was a sojourner. He was a foreigner in his own land. Abraham lived in Cana as a sojourner, as a pilgrim. Even his offspring, Stephen says, would be living in a foreign land. For 400 years, they would be enslaved, not in the promised land. In verses 9 through 16, Stephen went out and showed how the 12 tribes of Israel, Jacob's son, Joseph, and the rest of them, will be in a foreign land. That God blessed Joseph in Egypt, not in the Holy Land. And that the only thing the patriarch, the 12 tribes, those actual 12 inherited was a tomb. In verses 17 through 36, Stephen picks up the the life of Moses, yet he's still dealing with the land. In verses 17 through 22, the Bible says, or Stephen is pointing out that God rose up a redeemer and a deliverer apart from and outside of the promised land. And when Moses stands up for his fellow Jew, his fellow Israelite, he has to flee. He becomes, again, a foreigner in Midian. And after 40 years of, of, of wandering Or before the warning, after 40 years, what does God do? God comes to Moses, where? In a burning bush. He says, I am who I am, and I'm sending you back to a foreign land, back to Egypt. He says, take off your shoes. You're standing on what? Holy ground. It wasn't Jerusalem. It wasn't even in Canaan. Verse 36 Moses, the rejected deliverer, saves his people anyway. He says, He led them out, that's Moses, having performed why? wonders and signs, just like Jesus, that's what he's saying, just like Jesus, in Egypt, foreign land, the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for 40 years. So, Abraham, Joseph, and Moses, God's people, God comes to outside of the promised land Mesopotamia, Egypt, and in Sinai. Now, the law, verse 37 through 43. Stephen's argument, look at verse 37 with me. Verse 37. This is the Moses, now he's turning to the law. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. Moses, uh, excuse me, Stephen is pointing out that even Moses, the giver of the law, his hope was not in keeping the law. His hope was in Jesus, the coming prophet. He painfully points out that under Moses, look at verse 39. Our fathers refused, he says, to obey him. He gave them the law. He refused. They refused to obey him, but thrust them aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. Even under Aaron, next verse. He talks about the, gold, the golden calf and the, and, and the serving of God with their hands. Stephen never says the law is bad, the law is no good, the law is, 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 is wrong. What he's saying is Moses gave the law, and you guys are rebels. You've never kept the law. you never kept, you rebelled against the law, and you rebelled against the deliverer that God had placed in you. So if you're living by the law, if, if you think the law makes you righteous, You're in trouble. It won't. And then in verse 44 through 50, if that's not enough, he says, you don't need the temple to meet God. Come into the very presence of God. Listen, Abraham, he said, didn't have the temple. He wasn't even in the land of promise, and yet he met God. Joseph knew God and was in his presence and had a fellowship and relationship with God while he was in prison in a foreign land. Moses met God at Sinai, not in the temple. Even after Solomon built the temple of God, Stephen says, verse 48, Yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. And in verse 49, he quotes Isaiah 66. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Oh, what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all of these things? Hmm. What I want you to notice, I want you to know what the problem is about this whole you need to, to be in the temple, to know God, to come into the presence of God, it's found in verse 41 and 48. You can underline them in your Bibles. Verse 41 and 48 tells us what the problem is. Stephen says that they offered sacrifices to the idol and what? Rejoiced in the work of their hands. Verse 48. The most high does not dwell in houses made with hands. See what Stephen is saying? Religious people get their joy from what they do. They derive their fulfillment from what they do, their meaning, their significance by what they do, from what they do and what they achieve by their own hands. Look what I've done. Create our own gods, perform our own works, looking for our own power, doing our own form of worship, trying to get our own morality, and trying to be our own sense of righteousness with your hands. The temple had become, for many, a place of achievement, a symbol, a, 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 a place where they could achieve something. And he says, God's not in a box. God's not going to be controlled. God is not going to be placed. God is not going to be put in a box. God is sovereign, and God is self-sufficient, and God is everywhere. He will not let himself be limited and controlled by man-made temples. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets a Samaritan woman. Some of you know the story. Meets her at a well. Jesus asks for a drink of water. And then goes on to reveal himself as the living water. The well that springs up to, to, to eternal life. And then Jesus says to her, but you have sin in your life. And he points out her sexual sin. And she says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. He told the truth. He knew about her. Never met her knew about her. Jesus says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say, meaning the Jews, that in Jerusalem is the place where you ought to worship, right? That's the place where you really meet God. Jesus said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, meaning himself. But the hour is coming and is now here, I'm speaking to you, lady, when the true worshipers, We'll worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Jesus, in love, reaches out to this hated, racist Samaritan and shares himself with her. You see, it's not about the place, it's about the heart. Now, it's easy to say, how could anyone think, how could we today, 2013, gonna be 14, how could we, anyone, think that God is contained by the place of worship I say before we judge, let's relate. When you and I act in a certain way, say certain things around certain people and not other people, we act as if God is more present at a particular event, church, worship, a particular time, and a particular place. We pigeonhole Isaiah said the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. That kills any kind of secular, sacred thoughts, that this place is sacred, this place is secular. You don't go to your secular job and then come to your sacred Bible study, right? You don't do the secular thing with your sexuality, with your, with your um, business, and then come to your sacred time of Bible reading. And say, this has nothing to do with him. All of life, spirit and in truth, is lived out in an act of worship and mission for the glory of God. True worship is an act of recognizing God's full lordship in our lives. And how does God make worship possible? By being in the right place, by obeying the law, by coming to the temple, to the church. You no, know, Stephen is saying that because Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple, of all that the temple represents. That's what his accusers are saying, and that's what Stephen did say. Listen, when the Israelites broke the law of Moses, Moses gave them sacrifices. It's in the law. The sacrifices were to atone for their sins, but their atonement of sins was only temporary until the one and true sacrifice would come. Now the temple is obsolete. It's been fulfilled. Listen, there's nothing wrong with gathering together. I don't think that's what Stephen is saying. Take it down, have no place to gather. That's not what he's saying. He's saying all that it has become, all that it represents, all that it is and exists for you is wrong. He's not criticizing the temple, but rather finding fault in the way they viewed it. You understand that? J.P. Polhill, he's a a commentary, writes this, commentators, writes this. Stephen saw that the temple of his day had become something other than a house of prayer. It had become a symbol of Jewish exclusivism and the rally place for Jewish nationalism. Man, I mean, I just can't help but see everything going on around us. Unless it is recovered its true purpose as a house of prayer and devotion, it will ultimately be doomed. See, it's what it is to them. You have to come here. We know you don't. Now watch this. After he says, listen, God came to them outside the land, okay? God gave them the law. It was good, but you failed. God's presence is not confined in the temple. And that Abraham, Moses, and Joseph all met with God outside the land, outside uh, uh, the temple, He says, you know what I'm noticing? (laughs) You notice I'm noticing in this history as Stephen is preaching this through the gospel lenses? Every time God sends a deliverer, every time God sends a, a redeemer, he's rejected. He is persecuted by the ones he is to deliver. Joseph, appointed by God, was persecuted by his own brothers, sold them into slavery. Moses, appointed to deliver his people, was rejected by the Israelites, even had to flee to Midian. And Stephen drives home the point in verse 51. You stiff-necked people. Do I have that? Okay. You got it in your Bibles. I don't have all the verses up. I couldn't. So he drives the point home. Here's what I'm saying. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. It's a common theme. It's, It's running throughout history. God sends somebody, you persecute them. As your father did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have betrayed and murdered. You, verse 53, who received the as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Talk about a hot poker in the eye, right? This classic rhetorical style is called perior, peroration, peroration. Okay, I had to look that up. The speaker summarizes groups all the material and then drives it home, like summarizes it, and drives it home hoping that his hearers will respond with, with greater eagerness. And I believe that Stephen's point in, in, in driving that point home that you've killed them all was not to malign Israel. I don't think so. I think Stephen was hoping for their repentance, that they would be shown the truth and turn from their sins You're you're a stiff-necked that means that you're hard-headed You're a stiff-necked people, You, you know, uh, you're stubborn. You have an uncircumcised heart What he's saying is listen, you guys look great on the outside You think you got the land you think you got the law you think you got the temple You're you know, you're a bible club winner a bible drill morally upright follow the law But you're really filled with hatred anger and bitterness To the one to whom god sent In verse 53, you received the law, he says, but you did not keep it. Look at the Sanhedrin's response. When they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at them. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. I mean, just picture that in your mind. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, He fell asleep, which means he died. The Sanhedrin had enough. Their anger was boiling. They probably knew what he was about to say next, that Jesus alone can atone for your sins. They've heard it all before, John and Peter and all the other apostles, and they stoned him. Uh, Frederick Buchener, he's a uh, theologian, and a writer, and he describes being stoned to death like this. I thought you'd like this, you know, on a Sunday morning before breakfast. Um, Stoning somebody to death, even somebody as young and healthy as Stephen, is not easy. So if you're thinking about it, it's not easy, just so you know. You do not get the job done with a few rocks and a broken bottles. And even after you get the man down, it is a long, hot business. To prepare themselves for the workout... Trying to lose a couple of pounds around Easter, uh, excuse me, around Thanksgiving and Christmas. They stripped to the waist and got somebody to keep an eye on their things till they were through. So they gotta like, you know, get down to a tank top and, and shorts. Come on, you know? And and, and, and and that's how they do it. And if you notice in our text, they were angry with what Pete what, excuse me, what Stephen was saying, but what tossed them over the edge? It wasn't the temple. it, it wasn't even, I don't think, a sermon up to that point, verse 56. Look, he said, Stephen's going, look, guess what I see? I see heaven open. I see the glory of God. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, just in case, you know, you guys were wondering what I was looking at. Stephen is declaring to them what they knew very, very well. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel's vision. In my vision that night, I looked, and there before me was like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He, the son of man, approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. Picture that. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power over all people's nations and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. For hundreds of years Israel was waiting for the God the Messiah to come into human history the one Daniel spoke about. And here Stephen here Stephen is saying, you know what? I see it. It's Jesus. It's all that Jesus said about himself. I'm being a witness to that, and God is actually showing me that he has led into the presence of God the Father, the ancient of days. That Jesus was not only led into his presence, Jesus was given all authority, all glory, all sovereign power. They worshipped him. There's only one person that has all glory, all sovereign power, and is to be worshipped. That's God. Jesus is seen, and all the attributes of God is given to Jesus. That whole Daniel 7 has to do with the coming of the Messiah on the cloud, the Shekinah glory, to judge the world. To judge the world. This son of man, Stephen is saying, is telling them, I see him standing at the right hand of the Father. You're not my judge. I see my judge. I see my judge. I see the one in the cosmic courtroom I see the one who will judge the world. You will not get the final say in my life. My judge will. And he's standing before the Father. You see, Acts is not really about the apostles. The Acts is not really about even the Holy Spirit or the church. Acts is about Jesus. And that's what got him in trouble. Jesus got him in trouble. I say this over and over to emphasize that in your own life, in my life. Once you become a Christian, my life, the, the things that are going on in my life, the centrality of my life, all the things that are revolve around my life, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Stephen is being persecuted. He's going to die. Because he says, forgive them. Just like Jesus. for they don't know what they do. And we fail to realize that. That it's about Jesus. Here in our scripture text, the attacks that falls upon Stephen is not ultimately about Stephen. I see the eternal judge. I'm witnessing to the fact that he's alive and well and standing next to the Father. Let me let me say this too. If you understood, if I understood, if we understood collectively, you personally, what Jesus is really saying about himself it would move you either away from him in hatred or falling down and worshiping him. The claims of Jesus doesn't leave us unmovable. It moves us in one direction or the other. It did them anger and hatred and violence. When a quarterback makes a fake to his handoff, fakes a handoff to his running back, maybe fakes it this way, what's he hoping for? He's hoping that the whole defensive line is going to be moved in one direction. They're going to be committed so that he can turn the other way, hit the wide receiver open with nobody in the field. That, that's his hope. That's his hope. To be committed means you're going in a certain direction, trusting that something's going to happen. Some of us want to remain, well, I don't want to go either way. I don't want to be committed. I, I don't want to go to the left. I don't want to go to the right. I want to see what this is all about. But notice Stephen's witness about Jesus was met with direction. There are those who responded to the gospel in faith. There are those who hated him and and, and wanted nothing to do with him. Either way, if we understood what Jesus is really saying, that he is the eternal God, come down as man, die on a cross, rose from the dead, and will judge you and I and the living and the dead. He's the reigning ruler, sovereign of the world. There should be a response. Being being flat-footed, not moving, is off the table. It's off the table. C.S. Lewis said, we may note in passing that Jesus was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects, hatred, terror, and adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. Everyone understood what Stephen was claiming about Jesus. He's going to judge. You either hate him, run from him, or fall at his face and worship him. Again, C.S. Lewis, you must make the choice. Either Either this man Jesus was and is the son of God or a madman or something else. You can shut him up a fool, spit in his face and kill him as a demon and fall at his feet or fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let none of us come with any patronizing nonsense about him being just a moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Folks, I'm here to tell you, respond. If there's anything I would want you to walk away from the Sanhedrin's response is that although God is loving and God is long-suffering, there comes a point where God lets us in our own sin do our own thing, and that's a scary place to be in. So the call for all of us is to respond, not with the gnashing of teeth in anger and rebellion and rejection, but in faith, trust, love, and worship. Because Listen, it's a frightful place to be when we are unmoved by the gospel. When the claims of Christ fall on deaf ears and hard hearts. When we are unmoved by the claims of Jesus because he has taken the option of just not responding at all off the table. Off the table. Look at the Savior's solution, the final point. Verse 52, look what it says. Jesus is called what? The righteous one. Not a common term used for Jesus. Look at verse 56. Do I have them both up there? Yes, good. Jesus said to be what? Standing at the right hand of the Father. That's an interesting statement. Underline that in your Bible. All throughout Scripture, what you will find is Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. The right hand means power and authority, right? And what you see in Scripture, I think in every other place, I may be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure every other place, Jesus is sitting because What the writers are are contrasting when they talk about Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father is that in comparison to the daily temple sacrifices, the priest, the earthly priest who sacrificed regularly and daily and continually in comparison to Jesus who died once and for all. It's over. Hebrews chapter 10. Every priest stands daily at the service offering sacrifices repeatedly which can never take away sins, but when Jesus Christ offered himself once and for all a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. It's over. Stephen sees him standing. Stephen calls him the righteous one. Let me, let me, let me bring it all together. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John. Not the gospel according to John, same guy, but he wrote 1 John. I have it up there, but I want you to turn your Bibles. 1 John chapter 2. Let me tie this all together for us, and then we'll close. Stay with me, okay? 1 John chapter 2. My little children. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But you're gonna. So if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Follow me. Jesus, excuse me, John, tells us that Jesus is the propitiation. Some of you have atonement for our sins. What that means is that when Jesus went to the cross and died, he experienced the wrath of God, right, Anger towards sin, if you've never heard that term before, you get angry towards sin too. Uh, How much more for our creator? Angry towards sin, he experiences that anger, wrath of God on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin. God's anger then has been appeased, it turns aside, and now we can be in reconciled relationship with God. That's what propitiation means. God averting wrath through the death of his son. Okay? And what is pictured here in 1 John, and what Stephen is seeing Okay? is the great eternal courtroom of God where every man, every woman's sins will be paid for. Justice will be served. And what Stephen and John are saying is that Jesus is the advocate, defender, defense attorney, comes to the aid of his client, not looking for a loophole. It, it, it's a legal term. It means someone who has an official relationship to you so that whatever that person attains, You attain. Whatever he loses, you lose. There's that proxy, the legal proxy. What do advocates do? They stand. They argue. They talk. They make their appeal. They make their argument. What Stephen said is he saw Jesus standing in the throne room of God. He's saying the same thing that John is saying. Jesus is advocating for Stephen before the throne room, court room of God. F.F. Bruce put it great. Stephen has been confessing Christ before men and now he sees Christ confessing confessing Stephen before God. The proper posture for a witness is the standing posture. Stephen condemned by an earthly court appeals for vindication to a heavenly court and his vindicator in the supreme court is Jesus who stands at God's right hand as Stephen's advocate end quote. Notice also that he calls him the righteous one Stephen calls him the righteous one. First John calls him the righteous one. What does it mean to be righteous? The righteous one is the one who lived the perfect life. Right, something you can't do, something I can't do, something the religious leaders couldn't do. He lived a perfect, faultless life. How do you fulfill a law? By obeying it. When you have a, a stop sign, and, you, and you're in a major intersection, there's a stop sign, and you stop. You could go through that stop sign and pay the price, either a ticket or get banged up. Or you can obey the law and stop at that stop sign. Right? Jesus comes, loves God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, loves his neighbor as himself, follows the law perfectly. Doesn't break one law. We don't, he did. He lived the perfect life. And then when he went to the cross, all the penalty for our disobedience was imputed to him and all his righteousness that he earned by living a perfect life, by keeping and fulfilling the law, was given and imputed to us. He is the final sacrifice. He is the bridge between God and humanity. And you and I can either obey the law or pay the price of eternal separation from God. But if you trust Jesus, rely on Jesus, he, perfect life, can die for sin, for he had no sin to die for, and therefore he becomes the sacrifice for our sins. In other words, listen, Stephen is saying to the Sanhedrin, He's saying to the religious leaders, in order to be forgiven, in order to escape judgment, to be reconciled in the courtroom of God is not through the law, is not through the land, it's not through the temple, it's through Jesus, the righteous advocate. Okay? One last thing. Jesus is not in heaven as if you're a child of God. He is not in heaven advocating for you before the Father, begging the Father to give you another break because you blew it. That's not what he's doing. Jesus is not asking for mercy. He's asking for justice. Jesus, the righteous advocate, is standing before the Father advocating for his children, saying he sinned again, he blew it, but as he opens his portfolio, he says, I paid it. I paid it. And you, Father, to invoke and to take punishment from Lou for any sins that he has done would be unjust because I paid the price for all his sin. He doesn't call him Jesus the convincing. He calls him Jesus the righteous advocate, the propitiation for our sins. He's not demanding mercy. He's demanding justice. John Piper put it beautifully. Christ is our attorney and his portfolio is his atonement. He stands before his father in heaven and every time we sin, he doesn't make a new propitiation. He doesn't make a new atonement. He doesn't die again and again. Instead, he opens his portfolio, lays the exhibit of good Friday on the bench before the judge, photographs photographs of the crown of thorns, the lashing, the mocking soldiers, the agonies of the cross, and the final cry of victory, it is finished. He is the final sacrifice. He is the final temple. He alone fulfilled the law. What Stephen is pointing out is that every Messiah, every Redeemer, every Rescuer, Moses and and Joseph, redeemed and brought them back. I mean, Joseph brought them back to the land. Moses brought them out through, excuse me, in spite of all the persecution, all the hatred, all the rejection. Jesus Christ did it through rejection, hatred, and rebellion. Even in rejection, Jesus went to the cross and they died for our sins. And as we close, notice who's listening. Notice who's taking the entire sermon into his heart. I think this might be the answer to where Luke, the investigator, who, who investigated all these things, who, who interviewed eyewitnesses, got his information concerning this sermon. Look at verse 58. Look at verse 58. It says, they cast out of the city, stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul who becomes Paul the Apostle. Paul was consenting to his death, holding their coats so that their arms could be free, approving of the murder of Stephen. More than a few people, few people have pointed out that Paul's whole theological points of the temple of the law of Moses and Jesus' fulfillment of all those things come directly from this sermon. He was there. He heard Stephen. He saw Stephen. He heard about Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Paul was there. Paul heard that sermon. And many people point out as we go through the books of the Bible that the theology of Paul becomes richer and richer and the the themes of this this sermon that Stephen preached becomes deeper and deeper of theological truths of the gospel. I believe Paul, when he wrote these words, was reminiscing, very possibly reminiscing of this sermon. He writes in Philippians 3, If anyone else thinks there's a reason to be confident in the flesh to be a Jew, I have all the more circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrew, as to the law, a Pharisee, to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. the righteousness from God that depends upon my faith. That I may know him, Jesus, the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Ah, Let me ask you, who's standing in the courtroom of your heart? Something you made? Something from your effort? Or is Jesus the advocate standing before the Father of the portfolio of the cross forgiven, price paid, wrath absorbed? The greater you bring that into your heart, the greater your boldness will be and the greater the compassion will shine. His face shine, forgive them. Forgive them. I'm being stoned to death, forgive them. I want to be like Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Jesus. Persecution, trials, bring them. As long as I see my Jesus as the righteous advocate before the Father. Let's pray. Father, all we have is Christ. Not our own righteousness, not our own morality, not our own goodness, but the perfect spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Father, in areas that we have not been bold, in areas that we may have not been compassionate. I think those two need to go together. Help us to be that. Help us not to just join the bandwagons, but help us to be sensitive. Help us to love. Help us to speak the truth in love. And Father, we pray that we would be filled with your spirit and to be bold and compassionate witnesses for Jesus, even in the midst of persecution, as we see him our God, our King, our crucified and risen Lord, standing in the courtroom. No one else can judge us. Nothing else matters. Father, help us to respond as we sing this song in complete worship of you, laying aside the old life and walking in new life. Thank you for your sacrifice, Lord Jesus. May we walk... In it, for your glory and honor, in Jesus' name, amen.